Welcome to Question Mark, the podcast. Exploring the greatest story ever told with open minds and open hearts. We light it up, we won't come down. And the sun can't stop us now. Watching it come true, it's taking over you. This is the greatest show, where it's covered in all the colored lights. And the runaways are on in the night. Impossible comes true, it's taking over you. This is the greatest show. Hello and welcome again to Question Mark, a fortnightly podcast about Mark's gospel, the greatest story ever told. We're very pleased to have you with us today, whether you visited before or whether it's your first time. My name is David Payne and I'll be your host for this, the 43rd episode in our journey through Mark's gospel. Today we are delighted to have Cliff Barbrick with us. Uh, Cliff is a New Testament professor in the Department of Bible Missions and Ministry at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. Welcome, Cliff. It's great. Yeah, to thank have you. you. Uh, this is interesting. Most of his teaching involves introducing first-year university students to the New Testament, and he's found that learning and telling the stories by heart not only engages students, but it also draws them into the kind of serious rhetorical analysis typically reserved for graduate students. So like Steph, you appreciate presenting the New Testament rather than just reading it. Um, so what difference does that make telling stories? Is there anything important that I've missed in your in the introduction, Cliff? Um, and you're in Texas, aren't you? So welcome. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm in Texas where, uh, we're, you know, it's a little bit cold and rainy uh, this morning, which is not oh. typical for us, but but enjoying that change in weather for us. Um, yeah, uh, I, I just found that uh, internalizing stories, learning them by heart and then telling them is a really powerful pedagogical tool, uh, which is partly mostly what I'm concerned with, oh. with my students is trying to teach them to read these stories well, read them carefully. Uh, and of course, I've also I'm also interested since we're a Christian university in in helping them to read it in a way that will open them up to spiritual formation. And I've just found uh, with with new students who are maybe coming into the, an academic classroom to study the Bible for the first time, um, yeah, learning and telling by heart is is really a rich way to do it. Uh, partly, it moves them, and I can kind of use the language of rhetorical analysis. It moves them from just trying to focus on the content of the stories to being able to tend to what the stories do to an audience, right? Well how, well, how do they impact an audience? Um, and, and, and of course that eventually comes, gets down to how does it impact them as they hear it, but that's, that's higher level, uh, in, interpretation, I think, right. Uh, that's, that's something that's typically reserved for students who have, who have spent some time in the academy before they start doing that kind of rhetorical analysis, but by learning and telling students are, are invited into that immediately. Uh, and I think can be really, really eye-opening for them to begin to see how these stories are impact, an audience. And of course, when you're when you're learning a story by heart, you have to make all kinds of interpretive decisions that you could otherwise avoid. Yes. You got to think about, you know, where you're going to pause, what facial expression you're going to use, what gesture you're yeah. going to use, yeah. uh, you know, what tone of voice Jesus is going to have. I think for a lot of students, Jesus has kind of a flat voice in their imaginations. And for them to actually have to decide when it says he's indignant, can they say those words <laughs> in an angry way? Yeah. Well, that, that really pushes them and their understanding of who Jesus is. And so I, I love to watch that happen. I've had a couple of occasions where I've had a class the right size, and we have performed the Gospel of Mark as a group. So I have some experience doing what Stefan does, not not the whole thing. I've never tried to tell Mark all by myself, but I have told it twice as a part of a group of students where we divide it up and everybody has, uh, you know, about 20, 25 verses, something like that. And we tell it kind of in one go, just wow. taking turns as a group. And that's a that's a wonderful experience, and and it's it you know I just feel so proud of my students after that experience. It really transforms our relationship as as professor and student. Do you perform that in front of other people, Cliff? Yes, <clears throat> yes. We invite as many people as I can get them to invite. Uh, typically, when I tell them we're going to do this on the first day of school, they don't want anybody to be there. Right? They're <laughs> completely intimidated. They're, they don't you know because it, it's a very vulnerable thing to to kind of put yourself out there, and you're worried you're going to forget or that you'll look silly or something like that. Uh, so at first they don't want anyone to come, but uh, we, you know we kind of slowly work up to it, and they have a chance to perform their section just in our class a couple of times and get some feedback. And so by the time we get to that evening, uh, then they're normally pretty excited to share it with some other people, and and uh, you know get their friends to come if they have family that are close, and family can come, and that's uh, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful experience. So it's the presentation as well as the um, as the audience that, that watching it that that is uh, impactful to people. Oh, so yeah, certainly. I think um, so I think 
memorizing scripture is sometimes a spiritual discipline for people, but it often stops with the individual. Uh, they never take that next step and tell it to another person. And there's, mm. there's something different and something magical, I think, that happens mm. when you make yourself vulnerable enough to tell that to another person uh, that, that I think I think we stop short of the full blessing of internalizing Scripture when yeah. we don't take that step. Amen. Well, I saved the question I was going to ask Steph. Steph, just respond to that. I mean, oh, oh is, I was, I'm, I was gearing myself up for that question you were going to ask me. Oh, all right. Okay, <laughs> okay. That's a bit unfair. Anyway, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll, no, <laughs> I, I'd love to respond to what Cliff said, though, as you as you rightly prompt me. Thank you. Um, yeah, I want to be in your class, Cliff. I'm not sure about the idea of having to perform. Like the students, I probably feel the same way. But I, yeah. I think I, I think it sounds amazing. I'd love to have been. I'd love to be among your students one day. That'd be fantastic. But um, yeah. So what what is your question for me, David? Yeah. Well, Mike, I'm glad you asked that. Um, Steph, you started this podcast some months ago to explore Mark's gospel in more depth. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and we've heard a lot recently about Jesus saying we need to receive the kingdom like a little child. Mm. Uh, so do, can both go together? Are we making it too complicated by inviting a professor on to, to tell us what it really means? <laughs> we've had professors before haven't we? and and the thing is, yeah, I can understand that being a question that needs to be uh, addressed. Um, I have to take issue with the premise of the question insofar as you're quoting from Mark's gospel to kind of start that process. Um, and receiving like a little child isn't quite always what we think it means, that little section there from chapter nine. I think it's more to do with um, the receiving rather than child that, that's the issue. A child receives an inheritance and that's what God's blessing is. It's our inheritance. So it's not so much our receive, it's not as so much being the child as um, the way we receive it or what it, what the fact is we receive it. Um, rather than something that is restricted, it's recept, it's received by everyone if they want it. So that's the first thing. But I think it's a genuine question, nevertheless. And I think for some people listening to a podcast like this can be, well, it can be a bit of a turnoff because A, they might think, oh, this is so complicated. And B, they might feel actually a bit challenged insofar as they think, uh, you know, I don't really need to go to this level of depth to really appreciate Jesus, to really appreciate the story. I've got a faith. Uh, it's, it's one I believe is real and it, it serves me really well. And indeed, those who I try to, to love and serve. So to go into this level of analysis may yeah. feel quite foreign and actually for some quite off-putting. And I understand that. And I honestly think that God, God, without wanting to in any way suggest there's one level that's superior to another, God can use all types of um, reading uh, and can speak to all types of people. It's, it doesn't matter in one sense what level of depth you go into. As long as, uh, as far as I understand it, and as Cliff was talking about spiritual formation, that we read the Bible with that in mind, that we need to be formed by the Spirit. It's not something that we can do in our own strength. We need to have his guidance and wisdom. And God uses the Bible in, in a huge number of ways. And we can all probably, you know, even amongst us three, we can say, there were so many ways in which God has spoken through the scriptures in, in personally, mm. through the imagination, through the intellect and so on. Yeah. However, having said all of this, I have to say that having been a small child in the sense of feeling that this story is something that's very easy. It's it's very clear. It's it's a story of what happened. And that's been my position for many years as a Christian. The, re the, the fact is, as, as Cliff has explained, as I've got to learn it off by heart, as I've got to internalize it, as I've got to present it, I recognize actually it's a lot more complicated that yeah. Mark had a purpose in view, uh, that he had an audience in view. He has us in view. And as, he, as Cliff said, it's about, the audience reaction as much as it is about the very words on the page that's quite important here and as i go into this story i recognize that it's so easy I'm, I'm speaking only for myself but i wonder whether this is true of lots of other people it's so easy to misunderstand because our reading is a 
you know, let's be, you know, um, let's make no bones about it. Our reading can be superficial and it can be quick. We can be quick to make conclusions. Yeah. And if we do that, then we can go on off the off the track really quite quickly. And we, I think we've got to understand that as we look at Mark's gospel, it's the detail that matters. Every word's important and they all fit together. Mm. And unless we grasp that, the, the, the potential for making an error and, and, and you know, the, the error such as, I think, potentially of the idea is we've got to be like little children uh, mm -hmm. in terms of our innocence and humility to receive anything from God, which is probably what Matthew had in mind and Luke had in mind when they tell that version of the story. But I think in Mark, it's slightly different. So we've got to be careful about about that sort of thing. Good answer. I'll listen to that again when the podcast comes up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I like that. And and I, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't discovered, enjoyed sort of digging down a bit more into into the gospel when I thought it was quite simple. Cliff, do you want to, we haven't actually started the podcast as such, this is introductions, but <laughs> will it add anything to that before we listen to the story? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, that, uh, Mark is the kind of story, and I don't think Mark is alone in the Bible in this way, that rewards as much as you give to it, right? And so I think it can uh, be very meaningful at, 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 at kind of a, a simple reading, so to speak. But uh, the more attention you give to it, the more you dig, the more you, you find there. There's a depth and richness there that I think rewards that that deeper study. So I think that's one one way I would think about that. Um, another thing that comes to my mind is I think there there is a kind of um, maybe a raw, simple power to the story that would have impacted its original audiences, I think, in a very direct way. But there's such a gap between ourselves and those original audiences that we have a lot of work to do if yeah. we want to be able to hear it and be impacted in that same way. Uh, and not only is there th those historical and cultural gaps, but a lot of us bring uh, a kind of familiarity to these stories that also can leave them feeling kind of cliché. And so I think some of the work that we're doing that maybe feels like overinterpretation at times is trying to cut through some of that that uh, familiarity uh, so that we can experience that raw power uh, again in a kind of second naivete. Uh, but uh, and again, I, I would come back to I think hearing it told is one really, really um, effective way to do that. We, we so often treat it as silent print on a page. Uh, that when it comes off the page and you see it in a person's body and hear it in a person's voice, I think that does wonders for restoring that that raw power that the story has. Great. I'm going to stop you there. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, today's passage is entitled The Request of James and John. Uh, the disciples still want to be great, but Jesus has another way. Uh, the passage is going to be read for us by Lucy Warner. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, New International Version the request of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Lucy. Um, OK, we're going to... I've got a few questions from listeners, but first of all, I wonder, Cliff, as our guest, whether you'd mind just giving us an overview of the passage and what your main thoughts are about it. Yeah, thank you. Um, I can't uh, hear this passage, read this passage without seeing it in connection with several other stories throughout the Gospel of Mark, which I think is a common thing. That's a sign of a well-written story, and I think Mark is a well-written story. But uh, in particular, there's a there's a, a repeated pattern that's been happening in the last couple of chapters that we see coming to a culmination in this particular story, and it has to do with the disciples 
being able to understand who Jesus is, and then by extension, who they're going to be as his followers. And the pattern typically runs this way. Um, Jesus will offer some prediction about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And this is new in Mark's gospel. He's been very secretive about his identity, uh, silencing anyone who who identifies him or recognizes him. But we're told in this section, he's starting to talk to the disciples plainly, openly, in a way that he hasn't done before. And so he'll make a prediction with with details about what's going to happen in Jerusalem uh, involving his death uh, and and, uh, and what will happen after that. Uh, and then the way the pattern goes is right after that, the disciples will do something that indicate they aren't catching on, right? They don't understand that suffering and death needs to be part of Jesus's identity. Uh, and then Jesus will come back right after they've misunderstood and he'll offer um, kind of a um, reaffirmation of his identity, but he'll extend it to say, all right, if, th if th this is who I am, <laughs> And let me then clarify, this is what it means if you're going to follow me. And so we can look at this in a, a, just a couple examples I'll, I'll show you here, and, and we'll see how it plays into what we're looking at today. The first time this happens is uh, back in chapter 8, and it's right after Peter has identified Jesus as Messiah or Christ, which again is a huge moment in the gospel because we're told from the opening verses that this is Jesus' identity. This is the opening line that the narrator tells us. Uh, and then we're kind of watching to see who's going to figure this out. And for the first time, you have one of the disciples articulating, you are Messiah. Uh, but it comes very clear that they don't understand what that means, right? So right after uh, Peter identifies him as Messiah, then Jesus, we're told, begins to teach them. This is verse 31 of chapter 8, begins to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. Right? So it's as if Jesus is saying, you're right. Now, let me show you what that means. Right? And immediately after Jesus does this, then Peter rebukes him. Right? This is the evidence that they, they don't understand yeah. what this means. Like, so Peter, I think and I, we don't know what Je the rebuke includes. I imagine it's something like, uh, Jesus, maybe you were absent this day in school, but that's <laughs> not what Messiah does. Okay? The Messiah goes into Jerusalem and throws out the oppressors and establishes Israel Right, yeah. and independence once again in the promised land that God has given us. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so I think that I think that's the nature of the rebuke took, which then leads Jesus well to return the rebuke, right, to Peter, and then reiterate what it means. But he ex he extends it to his disciples. Right, if any want to become my followers, he says, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Yes, I'm going to a cross. He's saying that's what it means for me to be Messiah. And if you're going to be my followers, this is what it's going to look like for you to follow me. All right. uh, and so then you get that reiterated again, that same pattern uh, in chapter nine, <clears throat> where Jesus will make another prediction about what's going to happen. It gets a little more detailed each time, uh, and the disciples will show that they don't understand. And then Jesus will have to come back and reiterate and, and expand on it. And so we see that happening here, right? And our, and our section is kind of the second half of this pattern. So the, the 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 previous episode talked about the prediction. So in verse thirty two, you get you get the prediction of Jesus of chapter 10. It's the most extensive prediction he's made yet, right? Going into great detail about the suffering that's going to take place when he goes into uh, when he goes into Jerusalem. And then immediately after that, James and John are asking him for seats of glory, right? Seats of power. Yeah. And so it's clear they, they still, they're not getting it. They don't understand what it means for Jesus to be Messiah and therefore by extension, what it means for them to be his followers. And so that after that evidence of their misunderstanding, Jesus comes back again, the patient teacher, right, and reiterates right, what it means for them to be his followers, right? And here he contrasts what, what power looks like in the Roman world and says, look, that's that's not what it's going to be like for you. Yeah. If you're going to follow a crucified Messiah, you're not going to organize yourselves in the way that you see the Romans organizing themselves. Instead, among you all, right, uh, the, the, the servant is the one right, that you're going to be. And uh, whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all, he says, right? So he's he's reiterating his identity, but as he's doing so, he's he's shaping their identity. This is what it means for you to be my followers. And in all three of these, kind of this pattern, right, that that we have in this section, in some ways, I think, is uh, a working out of the, the, the story of the blind man in chapter eight that's healed, right? Because if you remember that story, it's an odd story that only Mark includes, Right? None of the other uh, evangelists include this story where Jesus has to try twice, yes. basically to heal yeah. this man. And we might understand why 
other evangelists wouldn't want to include it. I mean, maybe it's it's a little weird because he spits on the guy. That's one thing. Yeah, that's a little bit weird because it seems to show possibly a lack of power on Jesus' part that he like that it didn't take the first time. He's got to touch him a second time mm-hmm. to heal him. And so maybe we can understand why other evangel- evangelists would hear this story and think, yeah, I'll, I think I'll include some of the other healings of blind people. Maybe not that one. Uh, but I think it's important for Mark because I think that blind person is in some ways a foil for the disciples or a metaphor for the disciples. Uh, that's not to say that I don't think that story happened. I just think the way that Mark has arranged things, yeah. he put that story at that point and made sure to tell it because he sees in the story of that blind man the same thing that's happening with the disciples. Jesus tries to give them sight right, by telling them who he is. And their response of misunderstanding is like the blind man who can only see people that look like trees. And so Jesus comes back with a second touch to try to heal them and give them full sight. And I think at this point, after the encounter with James and John here in chapter 10, I think that the astute reader is starting to wonder if they are unhealable, right? If their blindness is so set in that they're they're just not going to see because they haven't yet. So that's what, when I read this story, that's part, I hear it. In, in 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 connection with these other stories and these patterns that are building, and of course we could we could broaden that out, correct? Because this yes. has been a, this has been an issue yeah. with the disciples from the very, very beginning. Yeah, they're not supposed to be the ones with hard hearts, but we're starting to wonder if mm. if their hearts are hardened by this. Yeah, point. kind of spoiler alert that they do make it in the end, which is um, really really encouraging for us all, isn't it? I think. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, I think if we're thinking about the audience who heard this, they would have known that. Now, I don't I don't know where yeah. I don't know where Stefan's. I don't. I haven't seen your performance to know where you end the Gospel of Mark. But of course, many think the Gospel of Mark ends in 16:8, and we don't have we don't have resolution about the disciples at that yeah. point. They they yeah. still run away now. But if you're an audience hearing this, right, and the audience that probably first heard this, many think was an audience in Rome that had heard this from Peter, then yeah, you know Peter makes good in the end. Yeah, and I think yeah. there's reasons that that's that's really powerful for an audience in Rome. But we, you know, that yeah, it's makes, fascinating. That is that's fascinating. I wonder though about the audience, and I, I'm I'm. First of all, I want to say just how much what you just explained, Cliff, um, makes it what we had our, our earlier, you know, our earlier discussion about the reason why we're going into this story in such depth. It makes what you've just said makes it so clear as right. to how powerful it can be. Yes. Um, and you've underlined, haven't you, the idea of Mark being a storyteller. He's not just splurging down the details but actually he's crafting them for a particular effect. He's got a particular reason for writing in the way he he does. So I, I think that's really powerful what you said. I wouldn't disagree with any of it. I think the one thing I would add maybe um, is something you kind of hinted at at the end about the audience. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel as you read this story, Cliff and David, but for me, you know, it does challenge it does challenge. And I wonder whether for the audience themselves at this point, they're being invited to see themselves in the, the roles of these characters, in particular, the disciples. So it is a shock that the apparent leaders of the church behave in this way. But at the same time, there is a question being asked of us, I believe, and of the original audience, too. You know, where do you lie in this in these matters that Jesus is asking us about. Are we going to follow him with the result potentially of suffering and of death um, before the glory appears? Or are we actually going to be more in it for ourselves? And this is what James and John are all about. And it, it boils down to me, again, a repeating phrase in this section of the gospel um, of, uh, you know, Jesus asks James and John here, what do you want? And that phrase what do you want is repeated, but also the word want seems to be quite important over this part of the gospel. If you want to follow me, if you want to uh, follow me, Jesus says, you must deny yourself. So you have a choice there. You can want to do that, but it involves suffering or you may want something else. Uh, this is where James and John are at right now, and it may not be quite what God wants. Yeah, that brings us nicely to um, we have some listeners and some Facebook group um, members, some very faithful ones, and we're very grateful for them. Uh, so James and John came to Jesus and outrageously said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Um, what did the disciples think they were asking? What did they mean? What did they think it meant for Jesus to enter his glory? Um, did they imagine an earthly throne? I'll read all everything she's written, actually. What did Jesus mean by his glory? Is it his ascension into heaven, being seated at the highest place, 
or is it in the crucifixion itself that his glory is displayed, i.e. his most vulnerable moment, helpless, mocked, in pain and dying? Does our understanding of the word glory match up with Jesus' understanding of the word? And when we sing in church, maybe, may your glory fall, or we pray for God's glory to be revealed, do we know what we're asking for? That's a great question. I mean, I think getting right at the heart of this gospel, uh, there have been others who have, have noted that in some ways, Mark's gospel seems to be written to undermine a theology of glory understood in a certain way, right? So when they talk about theology of glory, what they mean is this theology that focuses on Jesus as healer and kind of the, the, the goodness and the power that he'll bring and that we get to celebrate and join in that power when we follow Jesus and and yeah. and a kind of uh, uh, gospel of prosperity, right, that might flow from that. And Mark is is clearly undermining that. It, it, that's not to say that Jesus is not powerful, but yeah, that his power does not look like what the disciples are expecting it to look like. And then therefore, we should be honest, probably not look like he look. It's not looking like what we think power looks like or what we want when we want power, which is often, I think, sometimes what we're pursuing or what we want to think about the question, Stefan, that you're, you're highlighting. Yeah, I tend to think as I read this story, the way I understand it is that the, the, the James and John, and they're not alone. I think the other disciples are with him at this point. This is why the other disciples are upset with James and John, because they they want power, too. And they're kind of mad yeah. that James and John snuck in there and asked before they could. And so then Jesus has to set them all down and clarify, look, you're you're still wanting the wrong thing. But yeah, I think that they're still expecting they're going to go into Jerusalem following the Messiah and throw out the, the the powers that are oppressing God's people, right? Throw out Rome. Uh, and there's some that might assume that that's going to be done through violence. That there are, I think, uh, zealots among Jesus' disciples who are thinking violence is what it's going to require. Others might be hoping for some other nonviolent way that, that, that Jesus will be able to assume power. But I think they're still assuming victory in some form is awaiting them in Jerusalem. Uh, and in a way, of course, Jesus is saying, yes, the victory is awaiting, but it's going to look like suffering yeah and look like dying yeah uh, and they're they're not they're not on board for that so yeah i think they're still expecting some sort of earthly kingdom earthly victory and so then there's a, this kind of delicious episode where the, it's like they're talking past each other right uh jesus tells them you don't know what you're asking you want to sit next to me you want to sit on the right hand and the left of, of, of a suffering messiah and of course, that's not what they're thinking, right? They're thinking, but yeah, we want to sit on the right and the left of the glorious Messiah. Like he's, you don't know what you're asking to be yeah. that close to me. Are you sure you want that? Right. Yeah. And because they don't miss, because they misunderstand like, oh yes, right. We, we understand we're able to drink the cup that you're going to drink. And, and of course, Jesus here is, is likely talking about the cup of God's wrath. He's getting ready to drink down the, the, the cup of God's wrath to its dregs and, yeah. and, and they don't understand that's what's coming. And so when he asks them, can you drink this cup? They kind of, I think, blithely say, yeah, sure, we can do that. Right. So they're, they're talking past each other in this way that I think makes for good storytelling, makes for, again, a really <laughs> delicious story. But it, um, again, I think it really drives home for, for us as an audience. Um, we, we, we hopefully are sympathetic to the disciples in some ways. I think we're led to laugh at them almost in Mark's gospel, but, but hopefully that doesn't lead to distance because when we're really honest, I think we often are talking past Jesus in the same way as we pray right, to yeah. him and ask him for yeah. what we want. And, yeah. and he's trying to draw us into something probably different. And it's hard to come to terms with the realization that Mark is driving at. And that is that self emptying, which often is going to result in suffering yeah. in our current broken world is in fact the flourishing that he's calling us to. Yeah. That is the paradoxical truth of the gospel that we struggle to understand just as much as Jesus' disciples do at this moment. Great. Steph, what, what do you want to add to that? I think we may as well finish the, the podcast now. I think what Cliff right. just said is amazing. absolutely wraps up everything to do with not only this passage, but with all of, as he said at the beginning, with, with Mark's gospel. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much, Cliff. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love this, this, what, what the question is asking and, um, I've forgotten some of the things I was going to say now, but one thing that comes to mind now, as I speak, is the, 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 the idea of glory that the questioner asked about it, it, She said, does Jesus's glory come about at the crucifixion? And that's fascinating to me. I know it's not the passage we're dealing with right now, but from what I understand, the crucifixion, actually, if you read it closely, it reads more like a coronation. Yeah. 
So the imagery being used and the things that are being stressed, the idea of kingship, the idea of enthronement, the idea of authority that comes through, all those gruesome, horrible details, mm -hmm. it's, it's paradoxical in its effect. And of course, when James, and a spoiler alert here, when James and John ask to sit at the right and the left of <laughs> Jesus when he comes in his glory, um, what they don't realize and what Jesus doesn't realize maybe at this stage, but this is actually pointing to those people who actually do sit at his right and his left who are none other than the robbers or the, the bandits who mm -hmm. are crucified alongside him. So that is the moment of triumph, which mm -hmm. apparently looks like a complete defeat. And the other thing I would add, and now I've remembered what I wanted to say earlier, is when the disciples are, what James and John are thinking about this glory thing, this power thing, what they're doing, I think, and, and in a way they're being led to it by Jesus, they're thinking of a particular passage. And, and the particular passage they're thinking of is the book of Daniel, because Jesus again and again refers to himself, it seems, as the son of man. And if they, they know their Bibles, and they know that in Daniel, um, in chapter 9, I think it is, um, the, the son of man approaches the ancient of days and he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him dominion, in his dominion, which is an everlasting dominion. And if you, you can understand if they've read that passage without recognizing that the Messiah they're reading about is one who is going to in, endure suffering. They're thinking in earthly terms about this. They're thinking, hey, guys, you know that we've been given authority by Jesus. And at the end, when he comes into his throne, we're going to have dominion and power because we're his best mates. Mm. Wrong. No, that's not quite what Jesus means. And so it is a fascinating misunderstanding, as Cliff has said. It's, they are cross purposes. They haven't understood the suffering aspect that Jesus again and again is pointing out. I wonder if Stephen, I could ask you a question about your performance. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think you're right there. I think there is uh, that there's this layer where Jesus is speaking on, at one level and, and the disciples are not quite with him. Uh, and so I, I wonder in your performance, do you do you draw attention to this parallel between the right and the left in this story and and the right and, and, and the criminals? I mean, is there a gesture you use that yeah. your audience would, yeah. would make that connection? They would see, oh, that reminds me. Yeah, you know, that's fascinating. So Cliff, I have to be honest, it's something I want to explore more, but I do do one little thing. And you remember that the end of, well, I, I call it the, the end of the first half. I don't think it is actually as Mark meant it to be. But I, I have an interval at chapter nine, verse one. And it's the, the end of the, uh, the um, you know, that, 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 uh, that uh, speech that you, you referred to where he talks to the crowd as well as the disciples and says, if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And right at the end, he said, I, I tell you the truth, uh, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. That's the moment the crucifixion and the resurrection that follows is the moment that the kingdom of God comes in power, in my understanding. So I use a chair, which in, in the crucifixion I stand on, and I'm using a chair at this point in the telling of the story as well. And I simply point to the power, I point to the chair, which is a bit of a strange kind of connection to make. What's an, an, an average kitchen chair to do with anything like power? That doesn't make sense at all, but that's what I'm trying to convey. Mm. I'm not sure how successful it is, and I certainly need to explore a bit more about the right and the left. Yeah. I think that's that's yeah. crucial. Yeah, I like, that. I like that. I have another question. Um, so what can we learn from Jesus' way of handling conflict in his team, if we can call them a team? We mustn't laugh at them because they are just like us, as you said. In North Africa, when some employees get more work and therefore more pay than their colleagues, it can cause huge, huge, relifts, sorry, huge rifts in their relationships. And someone wanting to elevate themselves above the others who otherwise have equal standing would be seen in a very bad light. She thinks if Jesus didn't intervene with the disciples, there would have been a massive problem. <laughs> um the the 10 were indignant weren't they we, i don't know if that's the same word we talked about a little while ago which is a very mm -hmm. powerful word but um how do you feel about that cliff yeah uh no I, yeah 
I don't know that Jesus is offering a kind of management book here about how to, how to manage people, but, uh, but I think there is deep wisdom here. I think about how we interact with one another, how we live together and how we, how we lead. Uh, and I, and I think again, that, that when Jesus comes back and reiterates what it looks like to follow him in the, the contrast he's making is between, uh, the, the way that the, the Romans understand power, right? They lord it over one another, right? They see it as something to be grasped and held onto and used for themselves, right? And over, over and against other people. And then that's not what the kingdom of God is going to, that's not what power looks like in the kingdom of God. Instead, what power looks like is, is the cross, which again, that's the, that's the paradoxical thing that, that they can't understand. But that, that idea of, of emptying oneself in service and love is actually uh, what, what, what it looks like to interact with one another in the kingdom of God. And so, I think that is a that is a powerful thing to, in terms of how we relate to one another within groups. Now it's hard as a leader to know what how do you how do you help others right interact in that way with one another. And so the closest analogy I would have with is with my students in my class. Right when I walk into a classroom, there's an automatic power dynamic there that that's just baked in. Right, I'm yeah. the professor. I have power. Right, my students are are, are uh, in, in, a, in a position of less power relevant to me. So, so the question then becomes for me as as a Christian professor, what am I going to do with mm-hmm. that power? Mm-hmm. Right, what is it what is it going to look like for me to wield power? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, I think Christian teaching is more about what I do with that power than it is about the content I talk about. Right, I get to talk about mm-hmm. Jesus. And wow. so in some ways, many, many people would look at my, would look at me and say, well, it's easy for you to be a Christian teacher. You get to talk about the gospels all the time. <laughs> well, it's less about the content. I think it's more about, yeah. can I, what would it look like for me to adopt a posture of self-emptying uh, to my students? Wow. Right? What, what would it look like for when I will power, the result that it has is it empowers my students. Um, and that to me would be what, what Christian teaching would look like. And I think that's what Jesus is, is modeling here, right? And and so my hope was maybe that if as a leader, I, I kind of uh, try to live into that pattern of self-emptying, then that will have a transformative effect on the, on the whole community, in this case, on my whole classroom. Like there'll be a, there will, there will be a different dynamic to that class if I'm able to, to do that well. Um, but that's, that's a very hard thing for us to do because it requires vulnerability. Yes. That yes. we're not comfortable with. As a professor, yeah. it requires a loss of control in some yes. ways. Yeah. Right? And so how much of that am I comfortable with? How much of, am, 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 of that am I am I willing to let go of? And that's that's a hard thing to do. There's a difference, isn't there, Cliff, between power and authority. Jesus never, mm-hmm. ever loses authority, but it's what he does with the power that's interesting. And I love that example of um, the classroom. It makes me m- remember my own teaching career. And I've, I really now feel so encouraged by what you said, because I sometimes think, you know, I spent a lot a long time in my teaching career, 30 odd years. And how many opportunities did I talk, uh, get to talk about openly about my faith? A few, a few, which was wonderful. But I, I've often gone into school thinking, oh, I'm just another day at school. And I'm, I'm just kind of um, doing something which is important and valuable, obviously. But the most, most important and valuable thing is what we're talking about today. But what you're saying is actually it's in our, in our manner as figures of authority. It's in our behavior. It's in our attitude. It's in our our sense of our own importance or non-importance. That's yeah. the crucial thing. And I love the idea of making oneself vulnerable as a teacher. You're divesting yourself of your power to some extent. That doesn't mean you're giving up authority. You're not saying to your class, right, you take control now <laughs> and you can order it in any way you like. And, and they, they could do anything. They could walk out. They could um, throw food at each other, whatever. No, that's not what you're saying. There needs to be an element of order, but and you have to impose that as a leader. And that's what church leaders and these guys, mm-hmm. the apostles, had to do. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it's the attitude of service, the attitude of I am at your service. I'm not here to big it up over you. I'm not here to show you. Mm-hmm. I know much more than you, and you you're the minion. You just have to pick up. No, I'm I'm I want to take I take you as important as me, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be learning from you. And we're mm-hmm. going to learn from each other as much as I'm going to teach you. Yeah, so that's, no, that, that's brilliant. Yeah, I love that. Um, I really do. Can I just, we're talking about James and John, weren't we? And I was just going to read Revelation 1. I just love the fact that John gets there in the end. Because he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. And he goes and writes a book. 
he clearly gets Jesus totally in the end, doesn't he? And he writes the book of John and one John and so on. Uh, and I just love the fact that he's somehow been on a journey with Jesus to get to get to that stage. Um, I wonder whether you've got any, there's anything else you wanted to say on this? There's tons we could say probably, but um, on this passage, Cliff, um, as we're getting fairly close to the end, but. Um, okay. Yeah. 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 You gotta give me, give, keep me on track with time, right? As a professor, I can just keep talking and talking. Uh, <laughs> I love what, as two teachers here or three that's teachers. That's right. Yeah. You gotta be careful exactly. about that. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I don't. I don't think it's insignificant that, uh, that kind of building off what you just said, David. That John uh, has gone through significant suffering himself by the point we hear his words from Revelation one, yeah. and that that has been a teacher for him. Right, that that uh, his own suffering has led him to greater clarity. I think about who Jesus is. I'm not somebody who thinks that we should pursue suffering for suffering's sake. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying in any of these passages. Right? That suffering is somehow a good in and of itself. Uh, but there's also no getting around that. that I, th I think that, I think it's the self-emptying that that is a good in and of itself. That's what Jesus is calling Man. us for. And in this world of brokenness, that emptying <laughs> is 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 going to lead to being wounded. Right? That the vulnerability, vulnerability, the vulnerability you mentioned earlier. We're yeah. going to get hurt. That's right. Yeah. Now, in the age to come, and everything that it should be, that self-emptying will be reciprocated by the other. Right. And we'll we'll be able to enjoy the flourishing that God has created for us. But in, in the meantime, that's that's not probably what's going to happen. And Jesus is realistic about that as he tells his disciples. You're, I'm, I'm calling you into a way of life that is, in fact, life at its deepest and most richest. But in the moment, it's probably going to mean suffering for you, right? Because it's not going to be reciprocated by the other. Now, God is always emptying uh, himself in love, right? So, so it is reciprocated in that sense, but that doesn't mean we're not going to be hurt. So I think there's something about John's wisdom in Revelation being one through his imitation of Christ's suffering to that point in his life. And so he understands Jesus better. He understands the gospel better, right? Than, than he does at this moment when he's still seeking a seat of glory. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm, I just want to, I mean, I, I take the point about John. I don't think there's anything I can add to that, but maybe going back to the previous question a bit more, I've, I realized that Jesus here does the patient thing. I mean, they're all at each other's throats, and they've got it wrong. <laughs> what he doesn't do is storm off and say, you've got it wrong again. I can't bear it. But actually, he sits down patiently and teaches them. He uses it as an opportunity. This is quite common, I think, in Jesus's uh, yeah. character, that he will use, he will take the, the conflicts that exist, either it's the conflicts among his disciples or the conflicts between him and the teachers of the law and the, the authorities, and he will use it to draw them closer to God, actually, and the kingdom values that he wants to espouse mm -hmm. and wants us to espouse. So it's it's actually twisting and turning um, them away from going away from God, trying to get them to go towards God. So a great, another great example of this would be where he asks the, the Pharisees and Herodians to bring a denarius and says, you know, whose inscription is this? Who's, who's, whose portrait so, you know, and in the end, he's turning their attack on him, a conflict situation, into a teaching situation by saying, you know, OK, so what is due to Caesar's is Caesar's. Right. But don't forget, you have a responsibility towards God. Have you actually done that? Are you doing your responsibility to God? Um, and I think, you know, that that's really, really amazing about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Great, great conflict management in a, in a way. <laughs> Cliff, I always thank you for that, Steph. Um, always like to ask our guests. It's my favorite question, really. As, you know, you've given your life to teaching the gospel, um, teaching the Bible. What is it about what is it about it that is that gets you personally? What, I mean, why are you a Christian? Why why do you want other people to be Christian? Yeah, that's well, that's a big question, right? Uh that has a lot to do with history and nine minutes and those kinds of things. Seconds, you're okay. Yeah, yeah. But um yeah, I, th I think I've just had a chance to express the beauty of the gospel that that I find um captivating, right? That keeps me uh in awe of God and love with God in love with Jesus. And that, that is this, uh, th this idea that, that uh, the, the flourishing that God is calling us to the flourishing that he shows us through his son, Jesus is a life of, of self emptying love. Uh, and that challenge is so high that it keeps me, uh, it keeps me interested. <laughs> I get like, you can't get bored, right? It's, it's the kind of thing 
but at every yeah. turn you're finding i've got to get i've got uh, there's depth there's more depth there's more, there's more there's to more. do there yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's, so it's kind of a, an endlessly deep well to, to to dive into uh and and and, and it's so beautiful uh to, to that that picture of of the the, the life of flourishing that god has created for us that again i think it keeps me eternally captivated and i keep coming back to it again and again and and at some at some point feel kind of like um a hammer and all the world is a nail i just but i, I just keep coming back to that picture of of God's call to self emptying as a way to life, and it just feels so counterintuitive. Yes, to the narratives that we that are all around us. Um, the, but, yeah, the ones but, we've but, ingested, we ingest those, don't we? If we're not too careful. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. And 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 we're constantly sucked back into that, right? But yeah. but we catch we catch glimpses of it. Right? I think we catch glimpses of it maybe in a marriage relationship at moments yes. in that relationship or in friendships or within the life of the church. We catch moments of what it's going to look like when we enjoy those relationships of mutual self-emptying love. And it's just so, again, so beautiful. I think that that keeps me wow. seeking after it, right? It keeps me following Jesus on his way. Bless you. That's amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Cliff, you. can I ask you a question? As you're, of as course. Not necessarily on this, but I have a query about the passage, an aspect of the passage. Uh -oh, and, yeah. and I think it's one that is going to be important to many of our listeners too. That last verse, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think many of us will get the idea of service that Jesus is mm -hmm. kind of, in, you know, exemplifying here. He's saying this is who what he's doing. But I think for many, the word ransom is of an mm -hmm. interest. And, and, and I'd, I'd love you to explain. I mean, for me, it seems there are two or three possibilities. One is um, there's a ransom to be paid to God. But it doesn't seem, I mean, that's, I think some people might argue that possibly. For me, there's a, a way of thinking about salvation, which is to do with judge and jury. Um, there's the ransom that might be due to the devil, maybe. But I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued, having just discovered this, that Justin Martyr says there's, there's a ransom that needs to be paid to death, to death, that, mm. that we all owe a, a ransom to death. And Jesus has come to free us from death and all that's related to it, the decay and the, the sin and all the stuff that's wrong with the world. Yeah. Uh, and that's what the ransom, I, 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 I'm just guessing. And that's why I want you to, if you can <laughs> help me out. <laughs> well, now you're, now you're asking a question that a theologian is better equipped to answer than a biblical uh, scholar <laughs> like myself. No. Yeah, no, I think the, the language of ransom is clearly coming from the realm of slavery, right? It's, it's a word that has to do with, with purchasing, purchasing someone's freedom, right? Manumission. And so um, I guess I don't get overly hung up on who the payment's going to. I don't uh, see that as the, the concern that I think it's more about uh, we find ourselves enslaved yes. and somehow through his death, Jesus is going to free us yes. from that, that slavery. Uh, and so ransom is the word you go to, to, to describe how someone is freed. Gotcha. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm, I, I don't tend to put a lot of emphasis on, it's not about who the payment's going to, right. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. more about who, who, the freedom happening and maybe what we're being freed from. Yeah. Right. And I think certainly we are being freed from death. Yeah. Uh, that that's so Jesus' death frees us from death somehow, right? Uh, and but the death that I think he's concerned about is the death that comes from that 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 human nature inclination to cling to what we have for security, yeah. right? And thinking that that's going to do us well. And so power is what's in view here, right? We yeah. cling to power, thinking power is what's going to give us security in this life. And what Jesus is trying to say is, you you've got you have to let go of that. <laughs> Right. And when you empty yourself in vulnerability, you'll actually find the security and the life and the well-being that you think clinging is going to give you. And so he's trying and somehow his death uh, models that. But I, I don't think I don't think that's it. Right. I don't think it's only that he models it. And then we have to kind of build up the gumption to do the same ourselves. I think there is more happening there. But his death certainly shows. Right. That that emptying results in, in life. Right. Not the, the, the death we're, we're afraid of. Um but yeah, but I think there, there's that that to me is what I think is at yeah, play here. There is really a good. kind of thing we're enslaved to. And now I'm getting into Paul, right? Yes. Be freed from that slavery, right? And Paul will say in, in Romans 6, death pay or, or sin pays in death. Right. That's yeah. we find ourselves enslaved to these patterns of living. And, and again, I think that that desire to cling to something for our own security is the archetypal sin, right? That's Adam and Eve 
grasping the fruit to provide for themselves rather than living in vulnerability and trust in God. And so that, that, that's, that's the, that's sin with a capital S. And when we live that way, right, the ultimate end is death, right? Separation from one another, separation from God, uh, exploitation of one another, exploitation of the land like that. That's what results from that way of clinging. And so we have to, we have to be bent outward right by 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 jesus right so that we can empty ourselves and find the life that that we're 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 too afraid to embrace because of the vulnerability that it requires right so sin pays in death but god gives life right that's that's the end of romans chapter six that's the contrast he makes right you have a taskmaster a slave master and the payment that you're going to give for working for that taskmaster is death god is not a taskmaster he doesn't pay he doesn't pay he gives Right? And what he gives is life. Right? And so that's a bit, that's a long answer, right? But I, that's part of what I hear is behind. The I, I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. I'm definitely going to listen to this podcast again. It's, that was, that was really great. We're going to have to wind things up for a minute, but um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, it's been yes, enlightening. And if you want to hear more of Cliff Barbrick and Stefan talking, uh, come to our next podcast, which we're about to record. Part two will follow on. Blind Bartimaeus's perseverance pays off. Uh, that's all we have time for today. So it's goodbye from Cliff Barbrick. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye from Stefan Smart. Goodbye. And from me until next time. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this episode of Question Mark and don't want to miss any future episodes, be sure to click on the subscribe button. This also means other people can find the podcast and join the conversation too. We'd also love if you could leave a review so we know what was good and what we can improve for future episodes. If you want to find out more about I Am Mark, Stefan Smart's solo word-for-word dramatisation of Mark's gospel, go to www.sleek.bio slash Mark, where you can sign up for free for his newsletter and a whole host of other goodies. Join us and our special guests next time, where we'll continue to explore the greatest story ever told together. If you want to get involved with the podcast or have any questions or comments in the meantime, please do get in touch using the I Am Mark social media channels. We'd love to hear from you. We'll light it up, we won't come down And the sun can't stop us now Watching it come true, it's taking over you This is the greatest show Where it's covered in all the colored lights And the runaways are running the night Impossible comes true, it's taking over you This is the greatest show